Well, good morning, everyone. You can open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. immaturity. Um, right now I'm just wondering if it was uh, a form of immaturity that made me think that I'd probably have about six messages from Ephesians when I decided to preach through Ephesians. Um, didn't go back and count how many we've had so far. but We're going to focus on the first four verses of Ephesians 6 this morning. The title I have for my message is Christian Families. Ephesians 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. An author related a story without names of a pastor friend of his who met with a prolific Christian author. This author did a lot of research and writing, and this pastor who was meeting with him asked him how he was so prolific. How did he get all this done? And the author kind of mumbled his response, which was, I sacrificed my son. And the pastor thought he misunderstood him, so he asked again, he said, what did you say? And the scholar was almost angry when he replied. He said, you heard me, I sacrificed my son. The pastor went on to say that this scholar uh, had said that he had been so driven to research, to write, to publish, to make a name for himself in the academic world, he neglected his family, and his son essentially grew up as a stranger to his father. The pastor tried to comfort him, um, and gave one of those trite, I'm sure it's not your fault. Be careful about using that phrase, by the way. Um, don't say I'm sure it's not your fault if you're not sure whose fault it is. There are other better ways to comfort people, I think, than just jumping on that one. Um, and the scholar started to get kind of angry and and said, don't, don't try to console me. It is my fault. Um, he said even though people were amazed at his productivity as a scholar, the fact is he would give up every one of those books and all of the speaking engagements and, and all of the things that came along with being a popular author. He would give all that up and more, he said, just to have the relationship he should have had with his son and give his son a better opportunity to make the right decisions to follow God. And then that writer looked across the table at the pastor who he was sharing a meal with. And he said, just in case you want to walk in my footsteps, know that I pray to God that you won't. Because this pastor was also um, writing some, doing some writing work and, and trying to, to become more of an established author. That's why he was meeting with this, this prolific author. And this conversation echoed in that pastor's mind for the next few weeks. He was, he was haunted by it, and he began to look much more closely and intentionally as, at his life as a husband and as a father. And his response, his statement was, I was blowing it. That conversation led him to consider his own priorities, to adjust his lifestyle, 
it ultimately led him to make a change in um, his occupation, um, his, his career, his writing career, um, bringing more definition to, to his minister role, um, and giving up some power or authority or whatever you want to call it. And he later said, I have never once regretted that radical change. Now, obviously, children can grow up in great homes and turn out rebellious. I think we all understand that. But children, parents must seek to love, to nurture, and discipline their children. And that's what we're going to focus on in these verses this morning. Paul gives um, in, in Ephesians 6, well, Paul gives us kind of codes of conduct. And, and his instruction isn't just practical. It's not just nuts and bolts. It's not just do this, don't do that. But theological, um, it, it, he, he's looking to God and, and how it all ties back to God. He's bringing down to earth um, gospel truths, heavenly truths, and laying it out through this whole letter that we've been looking at. And for those of you who are not yet parents... Um, remember that there is a, a measure to which the whole body of Christ helps to train children. I found it interesting to note Paul seems to assume that children are in attendance when this letter was read. Um, so not just here. We have children in attendance here. Um, but Paul speaks directly to children in this letter that he wrote all those years ago. So he he knew children would be listening when when everybody was all excited. The letter from Paul came. The letter from Paul came. And they all gathered wherever they gathered. And they listened as somebody read this out. He knew that there would be children there listening too. And he spoke directly to them. This instruction, well, and he also knew that there would have been parents there. There would have been non-parents there um, amongst the grown-ups. And, and this instruction really is is for everyone. So whether you're single, married with no children, married with children in the home, married with children who are all grown up and moved out. Um, there is an aspect in which the children at church here are all, uh, we all have a responsibility to them. And and part of, of what makes me say that is what we read in 1 Timothy 5 about the church being a family. Um, in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. And we have this picture of, of the family and the church in a, in a very down-to-earth way. And so this means whatever your stage in life this morning, you don't get to tune out in this message if you don't have children in your home. Um, because you have an opportunity to love, to pray for, to teach, and to serve the children in the family of the church. But we do recognize that parents have a unique, a special calling to do this. Paul doesn't say here, set an example for your children in these four verses. But um, we, if we take all the previous chapters that have led up to this, um, and then this focus now on teaching children we do have to acknowledge that we are to set an example for our children. What are children learning? They are learning basic Christian living by watching their parents, first of all. Or at least they think they're learning basic Christian living. Are they learning basic Christian living when they watch their parents? Paul has been addressing all Christians in the church in Ephesus. Many of those Christians would have been parents. Um, and one of the primary places that they were to live out these instructions he's been giving them would be in the home. That would be the first place where Paul's instructions were the rubber of what he preached hit the road. Children are observing their parents' own relationships to the Lord. They're watching you pray. They're watching you study the Bible. Your children know whether you are dazzled by God's grace or not. I read that a couple months ago, I think it was. Your children know whether you are dazzled by God's grace or not. That hit me pretty hard. 
Children are observing how their parents value the church. They are watching how their parents are speaking truth lovingly, how they're working honestly, giving generously, encouraging others properly, putting away bitterness and anger repentantly, uh, forgiving one another Christianly. Those are the things we learn from Paul in chapter 4, um, the last part of chapter 4. Children are observing how their parents do that or don't do that. The first picture of God children receive is from their parents. They will get a sense of authority, love, and protection from their parents before they really have a concept of who God is. And even when you fail to reflect God before your children, you then have an opportunity to teach them how to repent and how to receive grace from God. Your example is extremely influential. What are your children seeing? Are they learning to value mission more than money? Are they learning that faithfulness to God comes higher than any career success? Are they learning humility and repentance? Or are they learning hypocrisy? They're also forming their view of marriage based on their parents' marriage. Give them a good vision. Remember, you're giving your children a picture of the gospel as well as demonstrating how husbands and wives love each other. One of the best things you can do as a parent is love your spouse. And finally, your children are learning obedience, respect, and submission as they watch you submit to and obey God. And, and we have that in the immediate context here, all from, from chapter 5, verse 21 through um, chapter 6, verse 9. Submission and obedience and respect are just the themes that are, are repeated over and over again through those verses. Parents are under God's authority, both in their roles to one another and in their roles as parents. And children are watching how we obey God. And yes, we do fail as parents. That doesn't make us bad parents necessarily, but it does mean we need God's grace and we need to repent and come to him when we do fail. And don't don't hide your need for, for grace. Don't try to pretend that you do have it all together when you don't. Um, there, there's a teaching opportunity there too. Children need to know that people do fail in obedience, but there is a solution, and there is one who did not fail. In Ephesians 6 here, Paul quotes Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. That's the fifth commandment. And note the promise. So Ephesians 6.1 says to obey. Well, what does obey mean? It means do what mom and dad say. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak more directly to the children here for a little bit. It's so nice that so many of you moved forward. Um, <clears throat> all the married couples didn't move forward when I preached on marriage. Um, anyway. I'm going to speak especially to those of you, and when I say children this morning, um, I vaguely remember what it was like to be a teenager. I know that I didn't always like to be thought of as a child when I was still a child. Um, so when I say children this morning, I'm, I'm basically saying um, those of you who are still living at home with your parents and are under their supervision and provision. Um, so that goes from, you know, Gideon back there is obviously a child, but it also goes on up to some of you who are a whole lot taller than that. Um, so don't take it as a slight if you realize I'm actually talking to you when I talk to children this morning. And I especially want to emphasize here for a little bit, those of you who are in what I just classified as children and have... Um, made a commitment to follow God, who have devoted your life, you have given your life to Christ, you are a Christian. I want you especially to, to note here in Ephesians 6, where it says you obey in the Lord. 
This is in relation to Jesus, your Lord and Master, your Master and Savior. That's the, the environment, that is the focus, really, at the end of, of all of your obedience. Obeying, yes, it's doing what mom and dad say, but it says, but it, it's in the Lord. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. This is a description of each one in this room who has given their life to the Lord. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've been created in the Lord. You came in through faith by grace. You're now in Jesus, and your purpose is now good works, Paul says, which includes obedience to your parents. Obey in the Lord. So this isn't just about you and your mother or you and your father. This is also a part of your relationship with Jesus. Remember, he is your savior. He's your master. So obey for his sake. Obey because of what he's done for you. And this is one of the ways you're able to do something for him. He'll take care of you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Those are three promises we have in scripture. Jesus will take care of you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Ephesians 6, 1, in these verses we're looking at, it says, this is right. And well, really what that means is children obeying their parents in the Lord, it fits. It makes sense. It's right. It fits. It fits who God is. It fits who you are. It fits what the family is. And don't forget that God knows best. God doesn't instruct you to obey just because he thinks, well, it'd be fun to make all these children, you know, jump through the hoops their parents tell them to jump through. That's not why God said, children, obey your parents. He did it because it's right. He did it because it fits. He set it up this way on purpose. And also note that Paul refers to this obeying, the command to obey your parents as the first commandment that has a promise. Obedience isn't easy. I mean, sure, sometimes maybe it comes fairly easy. But there are plenty of times obedience, obedience is hard work. And God rewards obedience. God does have a reward for you doing that hard work. You do the work of, of uh, you put in the effort, you sow the seeds of obedience, and God does reward with, um, well, he promises good things are a result of obedience. There in Exodus 20, and then Paul Paul repeats it here. Good things are a result of obedience. And I think about back when, when Moses came down the mount, all glowing, um, and, and he shared this. And of, of those commandments, as he read through those commandments, this was the first one that really had, well, the first one that came with the promise, and which was the promise that um, there are good things as a result of this obedience. And um, it was also really one of the first ones that related to how we relate to each other. And I imagine a young child hearing that, so here comes Moses off the mountain, which would have been amazing to see in the first place. I really would have liked to see Moses come off that mountain. Um, and imagine, you know, I can almost imagine, you know, children, most, well, some of you are short, right? And so when something interesting is going on, you've got to work your way to the front of the group so you can see what's going on. So I can imagine all these children looking to see, you know, what's going on with Moses here? And then these, these commands are shared, and this one get to this one, and you hear that promise. God has rewards for those who obey. And it even talks about um, long, long life, long days, extending their days. And I think, I think in that way he was speaking especially to, to those that were there at the mount because it was going to be 40 years or more till they got to see that promised land. But they could remember that God said, obedience brings good. Good things come out of this, and he'll get me through it. Even if it did take 40 years before they ever saw that beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. 
So, how should children obey their parents? Well, the first thing is children obey their parents by hearing and doing what their parents say. Over in Colossians, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So, if you want to please the Lord, then you have to obey your parents. There's not really a way around that. Obeying your parents is one way you can obey God. And yes, I do know that sometimes you will have a difficult time obeying your parents. But remember, when you fail, remember how Jesus taught people to deal with failure and sin. Repent, confess, turn around, go the right direction. And... I was thinking a little bit, This maybe it was dangerous, I was thinking a little bit to back when I was a child. And I didn't get into near as much trouble as my brother did. But it wasn't because, for the most part, especially when I was younger, younger, it wasn't because I was obeying in the Lord most of the time. It was because, I won't say I'm smarter than my brother, but I cared more about not getting in trouble. And he just didn't seem to care about getting in trouble. And if he wanted to do something and he wasn't supposed to, he would do it anyway and deal with the punishment that came from it. And I looked at that and said, well, that punishment looks a lot worse than the fun you get. And so I decided I would just obey. Not because, oh, God wants me to obey and so I'm going to obey. Or I think this is the right thing to do. Or, oh, I really love my parents, so I'm going to obey right now. Sometimes it was just, well, that isn't worth the punishment. You've got a lot better opportunity than that. If you remember that this is an opportunity to serve God, he says it's the right thing to do, there's good that will come out of it, and he says it fits. So you have an opportunity to stop and think. When you're, when you're struggling with that thing of, am I going to do what I was told? You have the opportunity to say, am I going to serve God right now? Now, even for those of you children here who... Um, haven't come to that point of, of being called to a commitment to, um, to to give your life to Jesus. Don't forget, children were made by God, and children were made to glorify God. And part of how this happens is by you honoring and obeying your parents. And so honor has the idea of respect. One way to do that is through a proper attitude. It's not honoring or respectful when you huff and puff or pout or talk back. Um, when children dishonor their parents like this, that's a dishonor to God. He made you the way he made you. He made you to glorify him. And then he told you you should obey your parents. When God introduced his written law there with that experience there on the mount and Moses coming down, this is... This is the first one that has to do with how you relate to each other instead of how you relate to God, how you relate to each other. The first one was honor your parents. The command to honor your father and mother is also repeated five other places in the New Testament. Paul's not the only one who talks about it. Jesus talked about it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Jesus highlighted, too, that he didn't think this was something that got left behind, but he thought that this was still pretty important. So I'm just going to give you four, four little things before I move on and talk to your parents about being good parents. Um, the first is trust Jesus for forgiveness and to be your master. Trust him to lead you right. Trust God, secondly, that he always rewards obedience in the best way. God always has a good reward for obedience. Third, remember that obedience is right. God said it is right. So, last, obey and respect your parents. God's called you to that. That's part of how you get to serve him in that stage of life. Now, parents. I want to focus a little bit on discipline and instruction that we have in these verses. Um, it's not just the fathers who, who need to learn this. He does uh, use the term father here in chapter 4, I mean in verse 4. Um, but he has 
just talked about obeying your parents. There is parental responsibility. Um, a lot of this is shared. Um, Proverbs 1, 8 talks about, uh, My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. And Proverbs 6.20 is very similar. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Both of you are in this. Um, that said, there is a primary responsibility. So it's not the sole responsibility of the father to parent, right? Um, but it is, uh, you do have a primary responsibility, fathers, uh, for discipline and provision. So... Here in chapter 6, this, um, I was going to read that from the King James also. Ephesians 6, verse 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We read nurture and we could we could almost start to think like back to chapter 5, verse 29, where it talks about nourishing, but it is a, a different word. The focus here, the wording used in in chapter 6 isn't on food and clothes but it's on instruction and discipline. In Hebrews 12 we have a description of godly discipline um, our heavenly father disciplining us in Hebrews 12 verse 5 And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, We have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And in addition to the discipline, we have instruction. Instruction, uh, the wording used there can have the idea of warning, like we read in uh, Titus 3.10, rejected divisive man after the first and second admonition. Um, And 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now all these things happen to them as examples. It was speaking about um, things that happened to the unbelievers or to the unfaithful I guess we'd say Uh, now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come those are the same uh, root words as we have here for um, the instruction uh, the the training and admonition of the Lord has we we have both the idea of discipline and and instruction coming through in, in those words Instruction that comes with imperatives and warnings. Um, Give your children God-centered truth. Give your children the God-centered truth they need to live a God-centered life. Um, The discipline and instruction here are of the Lord. We need and want to model our fatherhood on the fatherhood of God above. Uh, Go to Psalm 103. Let's consider our Heavenly Father and how he relates. If our instruction and discipline is going to be of the Lord, then we need to think about how the Lord works as a father. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Know their frame. Know their limits. Know their delights. Be compassionate. This is not without instruction. It's not without warning. It's not without correction. But this was, this was, these verses hit me pretty hard. 
when I evaluated my own um, fatherhood. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. It can be very hard to discern whether what we see in a young person is rebellion or immaturity. Um, Do you have the patience and fortitude to engage with that struggling child or do you just ascribe their struggle or failure to whatever best fits your schedule and preconceived idea of what that child is like? All of us, all of us look forward and want growth. We, we, we see a gap ahead of us and we desire to grow. We see that I'm, I'm moving forward with God and toward God and I see that I want to be more like him. I think all of us would admit to that, that that when we look forward, we see growth opportunity in front of us. I don't think we do as well at looking back and remembering the growth behind us. And part of the problem with that when it comes to uh, leading young people is the young person beside us is on that growth path, but they started at a different point than we did, or, or they started at the same point, but they started a lot later than us. Um, I could nitpick whether they started at the same point, but you get the idea. Um, if I look back at my life, okay, he, I usually compare my current state and motives to the person I see struggling. So, um, let's see, Johnny is way back in the back. Are you 16 or 17? 17, all right. So, um, I'm 36 now, so I've almost got 20 years on on Jonathan. Um, but, and no, I haven't seen anything concerning in, in Jonathan that makes me use him, but I just thought he'd be in the right, right age group to, to make this work. If I see a 16 or 17-year-old's behavior and compare it to mine and start to think things like, well, if I did that, it would obviously be pride. and not think that 20 years ago, I may have just done that out of stupidity or ignorance or immaturity. Now, areas of concern are areas of concern. Areas that need to be addressed, they need to be addressed. I'm talking about how you do it. Um, so maybe, maybe Johnny and I could do the exact same things, but from very different places. And, and to resolve it or, or move me to a better place and resolve it and move him to a better place is probably going to take a little different engagement. Remember their frame. Don't automatically ascribe rebellion to the immature. Don't automatically wave away rebellion as immaturity. Areas of concern are areas of concern. Areas that need input need input. Do we come like the father we read about in Psalm 103 is my challenge to you. Do we know and consider their frame? Do we have compassion when we come and give that input? We read, don't provoke them to anger. They may experience some emotional anger in the time of discipline. Um, but if you're able to model your discipline on the discipline of your heavenly father, if you are truly lovingly and compassionately seeking the, the joy and health of your child, you can discipline them well. Turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, we'll start reading at verse 26. <clears throat> Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. 
And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When I read that passage, I see a God who is providing for his children because he cherishes them. So my challenge to you as parents is value your children. It should not be hard for them to sense that you're providing for them because you cherish them. Earlier, um, I read Colossians 3.20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. And then the verse after that says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So in Ephesians 6, we have a provoking to anger that we're warned against. And then in Colossians 3, uh, Paul warns against provoking your children lest they become discouraged. And provoke here is a different word in Colossians, and it has the idea of embitter them. They should not be disheartened and not angry by our doing. Well, what's the opposite of disheartened and angry? That's joy. See, sometimes I think we can almost console ourselves with um, as, long as, as long as they're not angry or depressed, we can coast. Um, I don't think that's what Paul's telling us as parents, that as long as you don't get them angry, as long as you don't discourage them, embitter them, you're good. You know, throw on the cruise control. I think we're being called to the opposite of that. We're being called to the, the other end of the spectrum, which is joy. Seek their joy. God wants happy, obedient, trusting children. And do you want anything less? We read that about us. God wants us as his children to be joyful, obedient, and trusting. He wants that of these children, are you going to settle for less than what God wants? Thought about a few different things that can can easily bring about or provoke um, angering or discouraging children. One of them is when I fail to take into account the fact that they're children. Um, I expect them to behave just as well as Steve behaves. Well, he's got a whole lot of years on them. Um, He's had a lot more time for God to shape him. We're maybe still earlier in the shaping process, and there's still plenty of shaping to do, but don't forget that they are children. It's dangerous to compare them to others or to let them compare themselves to others. Uh, that generally leads to discouragement, sometimes anger. Inconsistently disciplining. Um, failing to express that I appreciate or approve when they are doing right, when they are doing well, when they are accomplishing the things that we and God want them to accomplish. I thought about this in the men's Sunday school when we were talking about, um, well, basically when we were talking about checking up on each other. Um, and if if me or JP or Mark or Nathan or Keith only ever comes to you and talks to you when you are doing something detrimental to your health as a Christian, um, that's not good. Among other things, you're always going to have your shields up when we come when, when you see us coming. Um, we need to also be encouraging when we see, hey, th they made a really good decision for the, for their spiritual well-being and how they're following God. We need to do that as parents. If we take that same approach of, well, we'll let them know when they're wrong and they can just figure it out otherwise, it's not going to work. Encourage them in the right things, too. 
disciplining them for reasons other than than disobedience and defiance, um, pressuring them to pursue our goals instead of God's goals. There are a lot of ways we can we can mess up, but God is there to help us do it well. I noted seven things that I need to remember as a father toward my children. I need to be trustworthy to meet their needs. Matthew 6, talking about bringing them up um, and, and cherishing them and, 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 and being trustworthy to meet their needs. Number two, um, from, from that phrase, of the Lord, uh, getting a spiritual vision for my family. It's not just about ethics or morality or making sure that uh, we're a well-behaved little unit. Um, do I actually have a spiritual vision? Number three, um, be appropriately firm in disciplining disobedience, Hebrews 12. Um, number four, give them solid instruction for God-centered living. Number five, know their frame, their limits and their delights from Psalm 103. Uh, also from Hebrews 12 is number six, always aim at holiness. And then from both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6, always aim at joy, the opposite of anger and discouragement. You might not always hit it, but you're going to hit anger and discouragement a whole lot less frequently if you're actually aiming for joy. Don't forget that God wants trusting, obedient, and happy children. A couple notes to wrap up. Those of us with older parents should also honor our parents. We should show proper respect to them, give special care to them. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 4, Paul was talking about how to relate to widows. If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn and to show piety at home and repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. We have responsibilities even when we're, quote, all grown up. It doesn't seem like Timothy had a faithful father. Paul told Timothy to hold fast to the instruction he received from his mother and grandmother. Um, Timothy seems to have probably had an unbelieving dad. Fortunately, his mother and grandmother taught him. And so, yes, there is a special emphasis given to the fathers, but, but just consider the use of parents and father and mother in Ephesians 6 here. Um, it is very obviously best for both parents to be present in the lives of their children. It's not the job of daycare, nannies, the church, the school, grandparents to raise children. That's your job as parents. Both parents should be united in raising the children, disciplining them, teaching them. We need to work hard at sending consistent messages to our children. It's the parents' job to raise their children. Big homes, nice cars, fun vacations, those are the things that a lot of families um, put their effort into. And unfortunately, you look at the world around you and those with the big homes and the nice cars and the fun vacations, you often see some neglected children there. Where's your energy going? What are you emphasizing? Don't lose sight of their souls. Stability is good, but not at a spiritual expense. And status is never a target. That's something I'm afraid bleeds in from the world a lot more than we realize and a lot more subtly than we realize. This requires spiritual discipline on the part of the parents and maybe especially on the part of fathers. It might call for you to adjust your lifestyle. It will definitely call on you to sacrifice. Are you conscious of your time and attention with your children? And remember, it's about closeness, not just proximity. So sitting with them has some benefit, but if you're not engaged with them, 
be careful that you don't think that just sitting near them is getting you where you need to be. Um, that's one that is, has has hit me pretty hard these last couple weeks. Um, doesn't work to say, well, you know, Charlotte and I sat at the table for however long the other evening. Well, but if she was in her project and I was in mine and we didn't actually engage with each other, it's not that there was no benefit, but it was not the benefit that I'm ascribing to it. Be close to your children, not just near them in proximity. Some things I hear of people doing and admire are things like um, special regular times with one-on-one connection from parents to children. Um, I've heard of, of uh, some where it's things like taking turns uh, one at a time, your children, to go get ice cream, you know, get an ice cream cone from McDonald's and talk about things, or uh, go to the park, go to a hike. And um, I've heard a lot of variation, but many of the people who I have admired the connection with the parents and their children have referred to specific efforts like that, that they took time to make connection. Um, I think of one brother, his children are grown and married now, and um, I mean, I, I'm i not in in their lives to, to the, looking on, I would say, I don't think they have any regrets, father to children, children to father. Um, and yeah, like I said, I'm not in that family. I, I could be wrong. Um, but the evidence points to good things. And he was extremely diligent about making time to connect with his children intentionally. This is an area where it's easy to admire, and we feel better because we admire it and have good ideas, but maybe we don't ever get around to doing anything about it. And I was feeling convicted both times I was working on this message and putting my notes together. Um, this is an area I want to improve in. It's become a lot more easy for me over the last couple years to, to squeeze out even the intentional things I've, I've tried to do to, to spend time with my children. Um, I was also reminded of a couple items uh, Brother Richard Bean shared in a talk I heard him give earlier this year. Set boundaries. Um, don't allow don't allow the things in your life to take more room than they need to and more room than they should or take that room from the other things you need to do. And so um, if, if your connection and your time with your children is getting crowded out, then you need to set some boundaries to make sure that they're not the thing getting crowded out. Don't give your family your leftovers. Give them your best time. And one of the things that he said that has been good for me to, to remember, seek to say yes to your children even if for a short time. He talked about, so he needs to go prepare a sermon and he just really doesn't have time to go do whatever this thing is. I think the example he gave was playing Junior Uno um, with his with his little girl who really wanted to play it. He said, I have no interest in playing Junior Uno. It's not going to captivate my attention, and I've got all this stuff to do. And he said, but he's realized that it works a whole lot better instead of saying, well, if I have time, I will, saying, I have only 10 minutes, but we can do that now. Because you actually get to it. Otherwise... You think you're going to have 10 minutes at the end of the day, but they're already in bed and you can barely keep your eyes open or, or whatever it is. Give them, um, seek to say yes to your children when you can, even if it's for a short time. To close, I don't remember where I ran across it, but I, I saw one. So back in chapter 4, verse 21, Paul said, The truth is in Jesus. So give your children Christ-centered instruction as you walk with them, as you drive them places, as you play with them, have meals with them. Talk about Jesus. Talk about his coming to earth. Talk about his death, his resurrection. Talk about him as Lord. And I don't remember where I found this quote, but I I read somewhere, um, have fun and talk about Jesus a lot, um, was something that 
uh, a writer was saying to, to fathers, have fun and talk about Jesus a lot. Um, we are to lead our children to the truth that is in Jesus. We want them ultimately to submit to Jesus as their Lord. He is their highest good. You're going to need a... Um, if, if you're going to talk to your children about Jesus, if you're going to talk about values and beliefs and sin and repentance, if you're going to talk about becoming a new creation in Jesus and what that means, you're going to need to have a dialogue, not just a monologue. And to do this, you're going to have to ask them questions, and you're going to have to listen to them. Know what they believe or doubt. Know their fears. Um, Proverbs 20, verse 5, Counsel in the heart of the man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. It's going to take work to discern the waters, uh, or to, to dig into, to get in those deep waters and to, to discern the matters of their heart, but it's worth it. And we do have hope. Um, I felt pretty, pretty lousy as a father as I studied through this. Um, but I am insufficient as a father. Parenting makes you desperate for God's help. But we can take great comfort in Titus 2 when Paul says, The grace of God instructs us for godliness. That's Titus 2.12. Parents have this responsibility to train their children. But God is also working in their lives. God's working in your life. So look to God for grace and strength. Um, Paul bragged about his weakness. We try to hide ours. Don't hide your weakness. Go to God for help because his strength will be sufficient. So when you feel weak as a parent, remember you have a mighty God and go to him. Psalm 127.1 Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. God bless you.